When I was in high school, some friends and I uh, spent an, a week at a camp in the mountains of New Mexico. And I grew up in a small town in far west Texas, and in the summertime, it was really, really hot. And so a way to escape the heat was to go up into the mountains and do mountain things. And so uh, my friends and I spent a week at this place and had a, an incredible time. But um, we were always looking for ways to make the adventure more adventurous, because that's what boys do. That's what we do. We, we, we aren't just satisfied with, you know, just kind of casually experiencing things, we have a tendency, especially as teenagers, when we feel invincible, to kind of go next level. And so as we were hanging out and doing all the things at this different camp, we uh, decided one day we were going to go mountain biking because there was a mountain biking trail through the mountains. And I don't know if you've ever mountain biked in the mountains. It's different than what we call mountain biking here because we don't have a lot of topography, okay? Things here are pretty flat and you might have a hill because you came off of a road that was elevated and that's about as good as it gets here. But we were in the mountains and so um, we decided that we were going to take these mountain bike trails and we were going to go on this adventure. The interesting thing is, is they didn't send a guide with us. They just said, here you go, guys. It's all you. You're on your own. Make sure you wear your helmet, which wasn't cool back then. We didn't wear helmets back in those days. Nobody wore helmets in those days because you didn't want to be that kid. Um, things have changed. We've progressed, and that's probably a good thing. But we started to ride our bikes um, up and down these trails. And, you know, they're switchbacks so you don't, you know, lose control. But we got to this one point where there was this downhill opportunity. And, you know... Typical guys, we've got to go next level with the adventure, and so we decided that we were going to make this a little bit more adventurous. And I'm already seeing this kind of mentality with my boys. I've got two little boys, nine and seven. My seven-year-old seven year decided just last week that it would be a good idea to take one of those electric hoverboards that they stand on. He decided to stand at the top of the stairs and take that down the stairs. Um, he survived, but I'm already seeing that happen for him, and it's kind of starting to freak me out. But my friends and I are sitting at the top of this hill, and we're like, y'all want to? And it's like, do we want to? Of course we want to. We're about to take this, this hill. And then it turns into a competition. Because that's the other thing about guys. We're adventurous, but we also are very competitive. And I'm an incredibly competitive person. If you and I are ever sitting down at a table together playing cards, and you get up to go to the bathroom, I'm going to look at your cards. Because I'm going to gain the advantage. That's just, that's just the competitive nature in me. You say it's cheating, I say it's gaining an advantage, okay? Whatever. But here's the deal. We start to go down this hill, and it's who's going to get to the bottom first. And I am determined in my mind that I am going to get to the bottom before anybody else. And so we start to go down this hill, and we are, we are cruising at a pretty high rate of speed, much higher than I anticipated we would. And it gets to that point for me where I'm going so fast that my feet aren't keeping up with the pedals. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if you've ever been in that situation Quickly after that, I catch something that I like to call the speed wobble. Ever had the speed wobble? It's not a good thing. It's typically not something we can recover from. And that was true for me that day. You can imagine how the story ends. I'd never recovered from the speed wobble. My feet never made their way back to the pedals. I went headfirst into the only bush that was on this side of the mountain and landed face first. Fortunately, I had a helmet on. Broke a bone in my foot. Had a huge gash in my leg. As I kind of realize what just happened, I look around for my friends. And were they there? Absolutely not. Because they are just as competitive as I was there all the way down at the bottom. And then they turned to look to see if I was okay. I got back on my bike. I got down the mountain in a lot of pain. But the reason I tell you that story is because sometimes we can catch the speed wobble in our life. 
We can be going through life, things are great, things are even adventurous, we're accomplishing things, God is allowing us to be a part of things that are good and great, and then we find this point, we get to this point, maybe it's a period of days, it's a season of weeks, months, maybe even years, where you catch the speed wobble. You're doing everything you think you're supposed to be doing. You're, you're coming to church regularly. You're um, reading your Bible occasionally. You're hanging out with good people. And all of a sudden something happens and you catch the speed wobble. And as we've been in this series called Unshakable for the last three weeks, we've been talking about some things that can cause us to begin to doubt, can cause to kind of shake up our life a little bit and make us uncertain. In week one, Mark talked about what happens when we go through a sudden change, an unexpected change. Looking at the life of Daniel, we see what happens in Daniel's life. In week two, last week, Mark talked about what happens when the pressure of culture starts to um, push us to conform to culture rather than who God's called us to be. And today I want us to dive in and look at something that maybe is something you've never thought about, but it's this idea of how can we excel in our education and not lose our faith. And I want to be really clear this morning that what I'm saying is not that um, education is bad. You know, we spend about a quarter of our life, on average, in some sort of educational system, in an institution, educating ourselves to prepare ourselves for what we hope to be an even better life in the United States. That's what we do, and that's good. Look what it says in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 19 says that, it says, do yourself a favor and learn all you can. Then remember what you learn and you will prosper. So the author of Proverbs, Solomon, tells us, hey, listen, education is valuable. Learning is important. Education is a great thing. When I was a senior in high school, I began to realize that I wanted to spend the rest of my life um, full-time in ministry. I wanted to pursue student ministry. I wanted to to spend the the next several years uh, allowing myself to be a part of a student ministry and teaching people about Jesus and the message of Jesus and the hope that's found in Jesus. And I remember having a conversation with my pastor um, that I had grown up um, kind of following and being mentored by, and he told me something interesting. He said, Wes, I realize you want to go into ministry, and you've always talked about going to college. And he said, here's what I think you should do. This is my words of wisdom to you, he said. He said, I think the best thing you can do even though you want to be a minister one day, you want to be a pastor one day, is go to a secular school and get a secular education. Now, if you didn't do that and you went to a Bible school, and um, I'm not saying that was wrong. For me, my pastor said, I think this would be wise for you. And so I did. I went to Texas A&M, and don't hold that against me. It's been a rough weekend. But I went to school, um, got a secular education, and as I look back on that, I realize, I think, why he told me to do that. I think that there was something valuable in me going to a secular institution, getting a secular education that prepared me and set me up for an even better experience in life because I didn't separate myself from the world. I was able to live in the world, yet continue to trust God, and God taught me many things in the educational process and in my walk with them. And so this morning, I don't want you to hear me say, education is bad, stay away from it so that you're not shaken in your faith. Instead, I want us to look at the life of Daniel and see what he did and draw some truth from that that we can apply to our own lives this morning. So we're going to pick up in Daniel chapter 1. And if you were here the last couple weeks, and, or maybe you missed it, you can go back and watch those messages online. But we know that Daniel and his friends have been uh, basically taken captive from their original homeland. The Israelites have been invaded. The Babylonians have taken them over. Um, They basically destroyed their civilization as they knew it. Um, They 
they, they murdered most of the people, tried to exterminate, and then they took, they took some for themselves. They took the brightest, they took the sharpest, the best looking, and they said, hey, let's bring them to Babylon and make them like us. And so that's where Daniel finds himself. He's been taken as a prisoner of war into a new place, an unfamiliar place, an uncomfortable place. This is a tragic situation for Daniel. But it's interesting what happens. Look what it says. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men. He says, train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Now, can you imagine this? You've been ripped out of everything that was familiar, everything that was comfortable. And you get to this foreign place with the most powerful people in all the world, and they begin this indoctrination program with you. Now, I, I can imagine that Daniel and his friends had a lot of um, mixed feelings. I mean, I'm sure there was some nervousness. I'm sure there was some fear. I'm sure there was a little bit of maybe excitement, thinking, hey, you know what? We, we are prisoners, but yet they're going to invest intentional time in our lives, so maybe this is going to be a good thing. Maybe we won't be prisoners forever. There's kind of this mixed bag of feelings going on for these guys. But ultimately, what the Babylonians were doing was they were trying to educate them, indoctrinate them, to teach them all things Babylonian, so that they can wipe their minds, wipe their memories of everything that they knew before, and begin to live as the Babylonians lived. Now, initially, we think, man, that's a terrible thing, and there was a lot of anti-God sentiment that was going to be taught to them. But it wasn't all bad. I mean, there's some things we still use today that come from the Babylonian civilization thousands of years ago. We talk about 60 minutes in an hour. That was something that originated in the Babylonian culture. We talk about 360 degrees in a circle. All these things were part of the educational system that Daniel and his friends found themselves in. And so it wasn't all bad. Look what happens. If we skip to verse 18, it says, When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters of his entire kingdom. Man, do you see what's happening here? This is really bizarre. I mean, Daniel and his three buddies have gone from prisoner of war to top of the class to advisor of the most powerful man in all the world at this time. This is miraculous. This, is, this isn't something that begins to make sense. I'm sure people were looking at this thinking, man, this is, this is crazy. These guys weren't even part of our culture, and now they're sitting right there with the top guy, the head honcho, and they're speaking into the decisions that he's making. It's kind of crazy, but I want us to begin to think about how did that happen? How did Daniel get to this place? Because I know in our culture, especially as a student pastor, I, I, I have the opportunity to get to know students for many years as they go through middle school and high school, and they, they're, they're having these incredible Jesus experiences, they're understanding scripture and what faith is and what it means to trust God, and then they go off to college, and oftentimes they get to college and their world is shaken up a little bit. People begin to cause doubt in their faith. They begin to hear things from professors or from um, friends from other areas that begin to make and, and challenge them and what they believe. And it's interesting because we can be triggered to doubt so easily. But I want us to be aware of a couple of things real quick this morning before we dive in. Number one, a lot of times we think, oh my gosh, the world is turning atheist. But did you know that atheism is actually on the decline in our world? 
since the year 2000, atheism is at a 0.17% decline, even though our world population is on the rise. But we have this idea that as as soon as someone begins to um, cause doubt or contradict what we believe, then we kind of step back. We kind of get bothered by that. Even this week, there was an award show on a Monday night, and and some of the hosts in the very beginning um, began to mock those who think Jesus. And I know it was all part of an opening script, but man, there were Christians all over America that were triggered by that. And my, my first response was, who watches the Emmys anyways? I mean, what was their, I think their ratings were at an all-time low. But the point is, is not to bash those guys or make those guys seem insignificant. The point is, is that oftentimes someone can challenge us based on what they know when we get into an educational system that causes us to doubt. It causes that speed wobble. You know, religion is actually on the rise in our world. A lot of people feel like maybe religion is on the decline as well, but it's not. The world is becoming more religious every single day. There are 1.5 billion Muslims in this world. There are 2.3 billion Christians in this world. What's interesting is that the Muslim population is actually increasing by birth rates. The Christian population is increasing by conversion, which means they're hearing about the message of Jesus, they're understanding the message of Jesus, the hope that's found in Jesus, and they're surrendering their lives and giving full control to Jesus, and Christianity is on the rise. So when we're pushed a little bit or we're um, kind of belittled because of what we believe, I think we can find confidence in what's happening in our world. And as we look at the life of Daniel, I want us to understand how can I go to school and not be fooled? How can I be a part of an educational system and not lose my faith? And so I want to give you a a really quick kind of biblical to-do list this morning on the steps that you and I can take in order to not lose our faith. And the reality is, is listen, you may not be in an educational system or institution anymore, but for the rest of your life, you're going to continue to learn and be educated. And so this is applicable to every single one of us in this room. The first thing we can do is this. If we want to excel in our education and not lose our faith, the first most important step is we have to decide in advance to stand for God. We see Daniel do this. We see this in the life of Daniel. If you, if you jump forward to the New Testament and you read about some of the things Jesus said, Jesus actually says, don't be surprised when you face tribulation. Don't be surprised when there's persecution directed at you because you claim to be a follower of Jesus. And so that should be a little bit of a confirmation in your relationship with Jesus. When people belittle, when people cause doubt, when people say, are you serious? You really believe that? Take that as confirmation that they see Jesus in you, and Jesus said that that would happen. So it's coming true. That's a good thing. But oftentimes it causes that speed wobble, and we have to make a decision. We have to make that decision in advance. You know, sometimes we get into that place and we are belittled or somebody says, hey, man, I don't know why you believe that. That's crazy. That doesn't even make sense. You know, with what it says in science and all this, I, I just don't see how that matches up. And we can have this tendency to do one of three things. Sometimes we take the, make the decision to just say, you know what, they're right. I'm throwing in the towel. This isn't right for me. And I just say that's, that's, that's a no-win solution. The other thing, and maybe the thing we do more often is this, we actually kind of withdraw from those conversations. When somebody starts to press, we begin to think, oh, you know what, I'm not sure that that's that's something I need to try to um, balance. I'm not sure that's something I need to try to promote or push on anybody else. So we begin to compartmentalize all these areas of our lives. It's kind of like a lunch tray. I don't want any of my food to touch. And so I've got to keep this section of my life here. I've got to keep this section of my life here. I've got to keep keep the church conversation here, the thoughts, the things I, I hear at church. They're going to stay right here on Sundays. I don't want that to have an influence on any other part of my life. 
And the truth and the reality of that is, is that becomes incredibly exhausting because we're, we're doing everything we can to manage all these things instead of allowing what we believe and our trust in God to influence all of the different areas of our lives. And so the third option is this, and I would say this is the ideal option, this is the right option, this is the option that Daniel takes, is to decide in advance, you know what, I'm all in and I'm going to thrive in this no matter what comes my way. You see this in the life of Daniel. Look what it says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself. This was a decision that Daniel made in the very beginning. He gets to this point, he finds out about this indoctrinational program, and he says, you know what? This isn't going to shake me. I'm going to stand strong in this. Daniel didn't know how the story was going to end. He didn't know what this was going to look like for him three years down the road. I mean, he's in an unfamiliar place with unfamiliar people that he probably doesn't trust at all. They killed his family. So he's nervous, he's scared, maybe even fearful for his life, but he makes a decision, I will stand for God. There's a resolve in his life that we recognize. I think what's interesting, if we begin to think about it, here's what I think it came to for Daniel. He said, I'm going to stand for God. I don't know how that's going to end, but I think he was confident and how it would end if he chose not to trust God and not to stand for God. You know, he had to decide in advance. It's like the budgeting process. I don't know about you, but I know for me, if I don't make a plan at the beginning of every single month with what money is going to come in and what money needs to go out and how I'm going to spend my income, then it never really ends well for me. And so I have to make a decision in advance of here's the money I have this month, and here's the things that I have to pay for. And then there's this really long list of all the things I'd love to pay for, but I just, it just doesn't make sense. It's not practical. And so I have to make a decision in advance, because if I don't, then I jump to that list of all the things I want to spend my money on that I don't have the money for, and it ends in a really poor way for me. And it's the same way in our lives when it comes to things that may shake us up and, and, and challenge our faith. We have to make a decision in advance to trust God. The second thing is this. Never stop learning. Never stop learning. You know, this is the interesting thing. A lot of times we um, want to pull back and we think, man, I, I don't know that the educational system is right for me. I don't know if it's good for me. It kind of scares me. It kind of freaks me out. But the truth is, is Daniel didn't do that. Daniel went all in. You see that because of the results. Three years later, he's the top of his class. He never stopped learning. He continued to pursue the information. You know, it's interesting, I hear this said all the time, I've heard this for years, and you've probably heard it too, but leaders are learners. If you want your business to grow, you have to continue to learn. If you want your relationships to grow, you have to continue to learn. Leaders are learners, and when any, the first moment that we begin to stop learning, we actually begin to decline. My first year in student ministry at another church in Dallas several years ago, um, I realized that in student ministry, you've got to make t-shirts. Like student ministry t-shirts, they go hand in hand. I'll never forget the first t-shirt I made. For all of our students, we had a big weekend event, and the t-shirt said, grow or die. And I remember parents looking at me thinking, Wes, really? That's a little extreme, don't you think? I mean, I don't know what you're trying to get out here, but grow or die? And, and it probably was not the wisest move on my part. I've, got, I've learned a lot, but the point was there, though, because it's true. You want your relationship with your spouse to grow? Then you've got to continue to learn about your spouse. You have to continue to learn about the people that you have relationship with. Look what it says in Proverbs 18, verse 15. It says, intelligent people are always ready to learn. Their ears are open for knowledge. Did you catch that? How do we learn? By listening. 
you know, right now I'm not learning a lot. There's not a lot of learning going on for me. I've learned a lot to get ready for this moment, but right now I'm not hearing anything. I'm the one speaking. I'm the one communicating. You're listening. What if we were more intentional about that in our lives, in all the areas of our lives, to continue to, to learn by listening? You want your children to be incredible students, incredible people? Teach them how to listen. So oftentimes we want to be heard. You know, I can be in conversations with my wife who is maybe the best listener I've ever been around, but I can be in conversations with her and there may be some conflict that arises and you know what I do? I listen, but a lot of times I'm just hearing her because I'm planning my rebuttal. And you know what I'm talking about, but I'm not really listening. It's interesting what she does. When she's listening, she's really listening to learn more about me in order to make the best response. I can't tell you how many times in conversations and in arguments that we've had, we've come back around and the next day I've picked up and noticed that she listened to what I said and she adjusted the way that she interacted with me and it made a difference in our relationship. I've learned a lot from her in that. I think it's what this verse is telling us. Listen, learners are listeners. Look what it says in Proverbs 19. It says to acquire Wisdom is to love yourself. People who cherish understanding will prosper. To acquire wisdom is to love yourself. So if you care about yourself, you want to be the best you, if you want to continue to grow as a person, what do we need to do? We've got to acquire wisdom. Well, we just talked about knowledge, so what's, it's important for us to understand the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is simply this. Maybe you need to write this down. Knowledge is acquiring and accumulating information and facts that we gain through education and experience. It's the information that we, we learn, that we understand. And it's valuable. But wisdom is different. Wisdom is next level. Wisdom is instead seeing things from God's viewpoint. Here's how I like to explain to people what wisdom is. Because wisdom is something that we gain from God. God gives us wisdom. It talks about that in scripture. But as I understand wisdom in scripture, I understand it like this. Wisdom is recognizing that all of life is connected. And so what that means is, is that what I think today and what I say today, what I do today, what I pursue today, what I experience today is going to influence tomorrow. And I begin to recognize that and so I begin to make decisions based on that because here's what I know. What happened yesterday, what I said yesterday, what I experienced yesterday has had an influence on today. And so I see that all of life is connected. And so when I have wisdom, I'm able to make better decisions because I understand that life is connected. There's a lot of people in this world, and I've found myself in this place myself, who have a lot of knowledge, but fail to accumulate wisdom. You can have a PhD degree and still struggle in relationships because you've not looked for and acquired wisdom. You can have every certification in the world, but still be a slave to credit card debt because we haven't pursued wisdom that comes from God. We don't see things from God's viewpoint. If we want to excel in our education, we've got to have knowledge, but we've also got to ask God for wisdom. Never stop learning. The third thing that I think we see in the life of Daniel is this, this whole idea, and this is something that's critical to our faith and our relationship with God. Meditate on God's word. Meditate on God's word. Look what it says in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. It says, study this book of instruction continually. We just stop right there and we'll finish the verse in just a moment. But he says, study the book of instruction continually. This is the Bible. This is God's word. This is something I believe that Daniel did with regularity before the Babylonians conquered their land. I believe that, and, and scholars believe that Daniel probably had the Old Testament memorized. 
This was something that was valuable to him. But he did it continually. I like to think about it like this. Just recently, I bought a new electric smoker because I'm a terrible cook. And growing up, my mom did all the cooking, and my wife, growing up, her dad did all the cooking. So then we got married, and neither one of us knew how to cook, and, neither, and both of us expected the other person to cook. And so it's kind of been a little bit of a struggle. And so she has grown in that, and she is an amazing cook now, and I'm still, you know, struggling. I still have issues. I can't, I just can't do it. And so I was like, I'm going to try something different. My brother has a smoker, and every time we go visit, he does just this amazing things, and we get to eat these incredible things. And so I was like, I'm going to figure this out. And so I've been watching YouTube videos, I've been learning about rubs and marinades and spices and injections and all these things to make anything that I smoke taste amazing. Last week, I told Brandy, I was like, I'm going to smoke some chickens today. And she's like, awesome. And I got her hopes up, got my hopes up. I left church on Sunday and I thought, I'm going to go home and I'm going to smoke this chicken. So I started watching a YouTube video, because you can learn everything on YouTube, how to change the oil on your car, how to bait a fish hook, how to smoke a, a chicken. And so I started watching this, and it said, once you put the rub on the chicken and do the injection, put it in the refrigerator overnight. And I said, uh-oh. <laughs> That's not what I had in mind. I was just going to inject the chicken, put the rub on it, and throw it in the smoker. But I would have not been doing what was best to make that chicken taste the best, because it needs time. It needs time to marinate. It needs time to extract the flavor from the seasoning and the injection. And I think that's the, the picture that we need to have when it comes to reading God's word. Don't speed read it. Don't read it to finish, but read it slow. Take in every detail. Look for key words. Look for key things to understand. Look how the verse continues. It says, meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. And then check out this promise. It says, only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. There's a promise attached to this. So read God's word continually, meditate on it day and night. Now some of you have this picture in your brain, and you're thinking, meditate. I've got to sit down in this weird position. I've got to stare at the lint in my navel and go, um, like that's, that's not what this is. That's Eastern meditation. That's not what this is talking about. The word that's being described here is this idea to remember it over and over and over and over. Read it continually, intentionally, and then as you go through your day, think of ways to remember it, to allow it to be a part of everything that goes on in your day. Maybe it's putting it on a, on a sticker that goes on your mirror in your bathroom. Maybe it's putting it on the, the back screen of your phone, so every time you look at your phone, which is about a thousand times an hour, you see that verse. But it's remembering it over and over, why? Because we live in a world that culture is influencing us. And what the influence of culture does is not always what God's word leads us to. And so we've got to be able to know the difference. You know, culture a lot of times can get frustrated with religious practice and religious systems. And the reason is because they think it becomes just this stupid system of a bunch of phony rules. But the truth is, for most people who disregard those phony rules is that the other side of a bad decision, they look back and think, man, you know what, maybe if I'd have paid more attention to that, I wouldn't be where I am. Let me give you an example. In, in student world, uh, this is a, a big topic of discussion. It's something that teenagers are curious to know about until sometimes they really know about it, and they're like, man, I wish I hadn't asked. But it's the topic of premarital sex. You know, it's interesting. Culture has a parameter that they've put on premarital sex. Because everybody realizes and understands there's probably a line that needs to be drawn somewhere. Culture's line for it is, hey, do it when you're ready. 
whenever you're ready, then, then that's the right time. That sounds great, but I mean, I'm just, I just think about that conversation. The guy and a girl are hanging out. The girl asks the guy, are you ready? And he goes, I'm ready. Yeah, I'm ready. I was born ready. And he's like, are you ready? And she's like, not, not yet, but maybe in about three weeks. And he's like, oh, man. Okay, but you know what? I'm going to put that in my calendar. Three weeks from today, you're going to be ready. You see, that's the problem with our culture. Our culture is all about being relative. What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. Don't tell me how to live. It's just going to feel right. It's going to be right when I know it's right. Scripture says something different. Scripture says, save it for the covenant of marriage. Why? Because God knows in his wisdom that sex isn't just this physical thing. There's so much more to it than just the physical act. There's emotion connect, connected to it. It's not that God wants to be this cosmic killjoy and rob you of all things fun in your life. What he wants is the best for you. And so he says, hey, live this way in order to experience the best life. How do we know those things? How do we understand those things? Meditate on God's word. The next thing is this. Choose believers as best friends. It's important for us to know throughout this series that Daniel was not alone. Daniel wasn't in this struggle by himself. We hear about his three close friends that are hanging with him, that are standing with him. You know, it's, I don't believe that we would be reading about Daniel and understanding the things from Daniel's life if he was in this struggle by himself. He had three people standing with him. I think it's something important for us to recognize. A lot of times I'll tell students two things. One is show me your five closest friends and I will show you your future. I truly believe that the best version of you exists in the context of healthy relationships. Here, look, look at what this verse says in Proverbs. It says, walk with the wise and become wise. We just talked about what wisdom is. So it says, walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools and get in trouble. There's a warning attached to this verse. He says, walk with the wise and you will become wise. He doesn't say, walk with the fools and you'll become a fool. Well, what is a fool? We've got to understand that first. Based on what scripture says, I believe what a fool is is someone who is the opposite of wise, which means they live life in such a way that life isn't connected, that what I do today, what I pursue today, what I say today is not going to have an impact on tomorrow. I'm going to live in the moment. I'm going to make a decision based on how I feel right now, and if it feels right, I'm going to do it, and then tomorrow will take care of itself. And what this verse is telling us is that when we surround ourselves with that type of mentality, it's not that you'll think like that. What it says is even worse, that your life will be impacted in a negative way because you've associated with fools. Now that might sound a little bit judgmental. And I'm not saying to completely disconnect all ties with anybody in your life who maybe just lives for the moment. But who are your closest friends? Who are your closest influences? Are they leading you to be wise, or are they leading your life to a place where you're going to experience trouble that's not necessary? When I was in college, I lived in a house with five other dudes, and let me just say, that place was filthy. All right, there was mold growing in the bathrooms, there was dirty dishes piled in the sink all the time. We didn't have a dishwasher, which should have like dropped our rent in half. Um, let's not even talk about the toilets, all right? It was, it was disgusting. It should have been burned down the day we moved out. But I'll never get over the influence that those years had in my life because I had five guys that loved God and loved me. And when you surround yourself with people who love God and love you, 
it sets you up to be the best version of you. And so I was at a secular institution getting a secular education, surrounding myself with friends who loved God and loved me. And it helped me not lose my faith. In fact, it helped me strengthen my faith. And I remember my pastor telling me that my senior year of high school. He says, it's going to be valuable to you when you get to school and you've surrounded yourself who are going to be bankers, who are going to be accountants, who are going to be lawyers, who are going to be doctors, who are going to be high school teachers and coaches, but they love God just as much as you do. And they're not loving God because they want to be in ministry one day. They love God because God is real and valuable to them. And so I think that those years were incredibly important for me to surround myself with those kind of people and the relationships that continue on today. Now, I know for me to say that, some of you are encouraged because you're like, man, I've got that support. But I know that there's others in the room today, you're thinking, man, I don't have that. Wes, I don't know, even know where to start. How do I do that? I'm glad you asked because I think the author of Hebrews gives us some insight on how to make those sorts of relationships. Look what it says. Hebrews 10, 25, it says, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another. Maybe you need to circle, highlight, underline, let us not neglect. Never stop doing this. What's he talking about? He's talking about this. Don't neglect this. We're gathering together to focus on who God is, his love for us, but also connecting with each other. That's what church is, it's not this building. It's a bunch of people who have decided to stand strong for God, knowing that life is gonna be messy, it's gonna be complicated, but we love each other anyways, and so it's this movement of people who love God and love each other. And when a movement of people love God and love each other, it impacts the world, it changes the world. And so don't stop doing what you're doing. You're here this morning, so you've already stepped into this. You can pat yourself on the back and say, man, congratulations, self, you're doing something right. But I think that we could take it a step further. I think it's not just attending church, but it's getting connected. And so maybe for you, you need to take that next step of not just attending on the weekends and being a face in a large crowd, but it's participating in ministry. It's volunteering your time. It's giving your time and your energy to the work that God is doing in the lives of people in this place and around this world. And you think, oh man, this is that desperate plea for volunteers. They're struggling. Listen. I've never asked for volunteers. We've never asked for volunteers because we're desperate for you. What I'm desperate for is the work that God wants to do in your life as you serve those around you. And that's different because as you serve and as you invest, God supernaturally does something in our lives as we're connecting with him, we're serving him, but we're also connecting with other people. I love what's happening on our volunteer team in our student ministry right now. And this is happening not just in students. It's happening all over the place in this church. People are investing their time to volunteer and serve students on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings and other times during the week at football games and all sorts of, th of things. But as they're serving, they're also building relationships with other adults. And they're finding valuable friendships. And they're beginning to surround themselves with people who are wise. For people who love God and love them. And their lives are being impacted. We've got to choose believers as our best friends. Last thing is this. Remember that God will reward me. Remember that God will reward me. If you look at the life of Daniel, you see the reward. I mean, he doesn't just finish the indoctrination. He graduates with honors. He is at the top of his class. Mark talked about this last week. He said, before every blessing is a test. God uses tests in our lives with our faith to determine the blessing that he's going to give us. If we can't pass the test, then he can't trust us with the blessing because we're not sure that we can be responsible with that. 
But he doesn't do that for Daniel. Daniel decides to stand for God, and God says, all right, sweet. Daniel, I know you don't know how this is going to end, but you better hang on, because I'm about to take you somewhere. You know, thank goodness Daniel did that, because if he didn't, what would we be talking about for the next several weeks as we're going through this series on Daniel? We wouldn't have anything to talk about. The book of Daniel was written because Daniel decided to make a stand, but because he trusted that what God was going to do in the end was better than what he could do for himself in the end. And when it comes to our education, when it comes to learning, when it comes to navigating life, we have to be focused on the same thing. Daniel made up his mind first, and you and I have a choice in this. Will we trust God and remembering the reward? Look what it says in, Math- in, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. It says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad. What the what? People are mocking me, they're persecuting me, they're lying about me, and I'm a people pleaser, and I don't know that that's okay, but Jesus says, be happy about it, be very glad. Why? Well, he tells us why. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. You and I find ourselves this morning in the exact same position that Daniel found himself in. Not just Daniel, but all the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, there was a point in their life where they had to make a conscious decision, I will stand for God. And I know that God's way of ending the story is going to be better than my way of ending the story if I choose to not trust him. And God actually gives Daniel later, once he can trust him, he passes the test, he gives him a picture of how the whole story is going to end. Once he sees that Daniel's passing the test, he does something similar for us in Philippians chapter 2. We catch a small glimpse of the end of the story. Look what it says. Paul is writing this to the church at Philippi. These are people that have just begun to follow Jesus. They're being influenced by culture. They're being influenced by education. And God says this through Paul to these people. He says, therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, which probably created some tension in this culture, just like it does in us. I mean, you want to create some tension at the lunch table tomorrow with all your coworkers, just start talking about Jesus. It's going to get awkward real fast. Armpits are going to get sweaty. It's going to get weird. It's just there's something about it, but I think that tension is healthy. Look what it says. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is an incredible scene. I mean, imagine this. God gives us a glimpse. At the end, every single person who's ever lived is going to be kneeling before Jesus, declaring Jesus is Lord. Many declaring Jesus is Lord in celebration because they've been calling Jesus Lord. They recognize Jesus is Lord for most of their life. Others declaring Jesus is Lord in judgment towards themselves because they failed to recognize Jesus. They denied him for their entire life. I mean, this is a crazy scene, and I think this is something that should encourage us, should challenge us, should move us this morning. For all of us, for students that are in the middle of an educational pursuit, there's going to be a day when every knee will bow. Your teachers, your professors, your classmates, your peers who mocked you for your faith in Jesus, rock stars, athletes, politicians, everybody is going to kneel before Jesus and declare Jesus is Lord. In the end, 
God wins. And because of Jesus and our faith in Jesus and saying, Jesus, you have full control of my life. When God wins, I win. So we have to make a decision this morning. What will we do with Jesus?